My name is Jo Gear. I'm one of the lecturers at UEA and I'm hosting this webinar together with Roger Pugh. Today this seminar focuses on inequalities of health risk. Climate change threatens to exacerbate health issues across the globe, but the impacts will not be evenly spread either between or within countries. They're likely to be experienced most acutely by those already facing poor environmental health conditions and denied access to adequate health care. At the start of 2020, the climate change community were hopeful uh, that following widespread declarations of climate emergencies in 2019, uh, the year would herald new momentum in the fight against climate change. But that was not to be. We had COVID-19 spread globally and with devastating impacts. So whilst many in the global north are calling for a green recovery from the pandemic, in the, in the global south, COVID comes on top of the existing climate crisis. The pandemic clearly demonstrates the need for universal access to affordable and reliable water, sanitation and hygiene services, as well as more equitable access to health services. At the same time, the pandemic overlaid on the climate crisis will make it more challenging for this transition to be achieved and highlight the need for greater community and service delivery resilience to extreme weather, weather events and other crises. So this seminar will reflect on how the COVID crisis has overlaid the climate crisis and explore how to address issues of health inequality and climate action in the post-COVID recovery. We have, we're lucky today to have three wonderful guest speakers. So our first one is a great friend, Batsurai Majuru, who's a technical officer with the Water, Sanitation, Hygiene and Health Unit at the World Health Organization. We also have uh, Ronnie Morungu, who is an international development and humanitarian professional with 22 years experience um, spread over 14 countries. Ronnie brings substantial multi-sectoral social development experience as a leader at national and international levels. And then last but not least, um, Paul Hunter is professor of medicine in the Norwich Medical School Paul's key research interests include the epidemiology of emerging infectious disease, especially that linked to environmental factors, the spread of infection by drinking water, but also recreational water contact and food, zoonotic diseases, risk assessment and risk communication, and in conducting case control and other epidemiological studies really worldwide. And of course has become um, very famous recently for his helpful commentaries on health issues as the COVID pandemic has um, has affected us all. I think we're ready to kick off. And my first question then, if you're ready, um, Batsy, is directed to you. So I'm, I'm just going to read it out from here. Um, so from your perspective on global health, what do you think are the key challenges that the climate crisis creates for countries in the global south? For two things, so A, to improve their baseline of public health and access to health and wash services for low income populations. And B, to interconnect with other drivers of global health inequalities, including emerging diseases such as COVID. 
Thanks, Joe, for that question. And thanks also for the invitation to participate in this session. I'm glad to be here. I was saying earlier that it feels like being amongst family members, having been at UEA myself. And to come back to the question, I think you said it rightly at the beginning of the session that um, climate change really exacerbates challenges that have already existed in wash services and public health services in developing countries. And so the challenge that countries now face is how to mitigate or um, overcome the exacerbation of some of those issues that they've already been dealing with. I think the overall issue that countries are trying to overcome right now is how to maintain or accelerate progress in provision of public health services and water services, while at the same time reacting to the impacts of climate change on that infrastructure or those services that are being put in place. And I use the word reacting um, quite um, deliberately because I think the ideal might be that um, countries are working towards embedding climate resilience, for instance, in um, water services. But this is actually much more difficult to achieve in practice. So, you know, by resilience, I mean being able to anticipate, respond, cope with, or recover from some of the impacts of climate related shocks. But in most cases, we see a more of a reactionary approach for a number of reasons. Um, I, wouldn't, I won't claim to know all the reasons, so I'll just focus on a few. And I think those are quite common in a lot of countries. But I think these are really issues that relate primarily to policy and governance, um, to information and management systems, as well as financing in these countries. So just to try and unpack that a little bit, I think on policy and governance, um, in a lot of developing countries, low-income populations are living in many, mainly rural peri-urban areas. And that means that the institutions or the actors that are involved in the provision of wash services or public health services are quite varied. You have a mix of um, non-government actors, the government itself, sometimes the households that actually have to be you know, um, providing these services themselves. In fact, my thesis when I was at UAA was actually looking at how households were trying to provide their own wash services because that wasn't happening on the part of the government. And so essentially there are a lot of actors that are involved and embedding resilience in their actions, in the services that they're providing is difficult because you're having to target multiple people. What we also know now as we're working towards a sustainable development agenda is that regulatory oversight of services is important. So having somebody who's ensuring that the services that are being provided meet a certain level of, um, meet a certain standard, for instance, and that they're being provided equitably. But um, once you have a lot of actors that are involved, it's difficult to maintain that kind of regulatory oversight. You might not have the mandate to be able to deal with private service providers or non-governmental actors, or also just by the nature and the location of where populations are, in most cases in rural areas, there is no oversight because mandates are limited to um, public utilities that are in the urban areas. I think the other issue that's related to policy and governance is just the politics around um, the provision of services. Um, some of the conversations that we've had, um, for instance, with the network of regulators that I work with have been around, you know, shifting focus from sewage, um, or sewage for sanitation, sewage services for sanitation and something that's probably less expensive and in the context of climate change, more sustainable 
And in some countries, that's actually quite um, unpalatable because that's perceived as receiving an inferior level of service. But the reality is also that the water resources are not able to deal with um, the provision of sewer services for everyone everywhere. Um, there's also just the politics of households themselves aspiring for something that is different. When we talk about low-income populations, um, some of them might be populations that have been marginalized for quite a long time. There's a history of political and historical marginalization. And so on a political level, there's this desire to bring everybody up to the same level, but it's not actually feasible with the resources that countries have and also in the light of climate change. I think the last issue on, on politics and governance that I would like to touch on is just to do with target setting. So we talk about, um, you know, X number of countries have basic access to water services, but in terms of what level of progress is deemed reasonable, there's no clear guidance on that. You know, should we aim to have 20% um, more of our population um, in rural areas gaining access to our services? How feasible is that given our resources? How feasible is that given our own vulnerability to the impacts of climate change? So I think those are some of the, the conversations that are not being held um, sufficiently, in my view, to inform some of these actions that um, countries might be taking. I think there are also strong limitations on information systems. Um, this mix of either having no data at all on um, the impacts of climate change or actually um, climate um, change in, in, in a particular setting, or having information that exists but is not being acted on. So in some countries, it's not so much that nobody has collected this data, it's this gap between data and actual action. That could be to do with political uh, pressure, that could be to do with just not knowing where to start from. Um, how do we prioritize some of our actions? An example that I can give, I won't name the country, but we were talking about improving um, water services with a link on neglected tropical diseases, recognizing that in that area, water scarcity is a big issue, but that's also related to a lot of um, NTDs such as um, trachoma, schistosomiasis, et cetera. But when it came to the question of, okay, where do we start from? The data to actually inform that action was not actually there. So it feels like everyone everywhere is a priority. And then that just gets you into a state of paralysis because if everyone everywhere needs some kind of help, then yeah, it's difficult to actually act. And I think the last point that I'll mention on this is just on finance. Um, there are financing platforms, financing mechanisms that exist but a critical gap is how to access those finances. We already know that in a lot of countries that do need this kind of climate financing, there's a limited capacity in being able to get the accreditations that are required for it. But at the same time, a lot of the funds that are associated with development projects have now have that requirement that you must include climate resilience, you must include um, adaptation, um, vulnerability and adaptation assessments as part of your projects. But unlocking that financing really requires some level of um, understanding of what is being required, the capacity to meet that requirement, and make sure that you're able to sustain it in the long run. So in countries where there is climate resilience being built into white systems, there's resilience being built 
into the public health services. It's usually being done by some external agency. And so this really brings into question the idea of you know, what happens thereafter when this project ends, uh, whether it's in the next three or five years, how do we sustain some of those impacts that have been made? So I think that's in a nutshell my take on the first part of your question. To the second part of the question on how this interconnects with other drivers of global health risks and thinking about COVID-19, I think the real issue is that um, in, in addition to climate change exacerbating these challenges and gaps that are already outlined, it also means that countries, because they don't have that resilience, they don't have that preparedness, any emergency that comes up means essentially a diversion from any other public health um, programming that's been taking place. Um, and just shifting focus to the singular issue. Um, we know now that um, from the Global Progress on Malaria report, there's actually been a stall in progress. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that health workers would otherwise be going out um, in communities and working on malaria prevention programs had to be diverted to COVID. And the same can be said for a lot of other diseases that are out there. And so without that level of resilience that is already built into the public health systems, I see a situation in which we're continually reacting to anything that comes up because there is no, um, there's no background capacity to be able to absorb some of those shots and continue with the priorities that have been set forward. But I think I'll stop here for now, thanks. Thank you, Betsy, thank you for that very articulate and really informative response, very well considered, thank you. Um, Ronnie or Paul, um, would you like to make any comment or add anything to what Betsy said? Uh, no, I think uh, you said very eloquent. Um, I'll uh, leave it to Ronnie to com comment. <laughs> yes, I th thank, thank you very much. Um, yes, I think uh, Batsy's spot on in terms of the, um, um, the nexus between uh, climate change and the public health challenges that we are facing. I think one aspect that I can just add on is the, the issue of capacity. Uh, currently, um, if you look at uh, particularly sub-Saharan Africa, uh, there are all there are challenges around capacity, um, particularly around uh, health workers. So the coming in of climate change compounds the challenges because the governments will also need to build the capacity around how to handle and to respond to uh, climate change as well. And this is for uh, budgetary implications because you need to have enough budget to build the capacity of your staff to be able to, uh, to handle that. But uh, overall, I agree to uh, the submissions that uh, Batsi has made. Back to you. Thanks, Ronnie. So um, we'll move on. So, um, but Ronnie, if I can then direct the next question to you initially. So we're being encouraged to see the COVID-19 pandemic, not just as a threat, but as an opportunity to build back better, to address some of these intersecting challenges that um, you and Batsy have raised such as adaptations to climate change, improving wash services for poorly served communities and improving public health and well-being for all. So how could building back better to reduce health inequalities be made feasible in the areas that you work in 
And do you see any examples where this is already happening? Yes, great. Uh, thank you very much, Joe. I think uh, um, let me start by appreciating you for inviting me for this, uh, in this special seminar. Uh, but uh, let me also start by highlighting a, a brief about my organization because the examples that I'm going to give, they also speak to the mission and also the operations of my organization. So I, I'm with WaterAid and WaterAid is an international organization that has got operations in about 38 countries globally, uh, spread um, uh, in uh, four continents, the Americas, Africa, Europe and Asia. And our mandate is basically to contribute to SDG 6, uh, which seeks to ensure that everyone everywhere has got access to quality uh, water sanitation and hygiene services. So coming to your question around building back better, um, I will speak to about seven aspects that we need to consider. One, uh, I will speak around institutional and uh, individual capacity. Uh, I would talk around innovation. I'll also speak around institutional arrangements and uh, governance issues. Then I'll look into uh, investment and financing, uh, data and information management, aspects of inclusion, then aspects of integration, and lastly, influencing. I think just reflecting on this, I can see that there's a complementarity with what Batsi has actually submitted. Uh, I think um, uh, to give more detail uh, on uh, the first one around institutional capacity development, we have noted that for us, there are, there are a lot of uh, capacity gaps that we are experiencing, uh, it, be it at national level, at sub-national level, we are also seeing the same also at a regional level uh, as well. And for us to be able to build back, to build back better, we need to ensure that um, institutional and human capacity are built. Mm -hmm. And um, this is uh, further compounded. We know that the challenge is further compounded with inadequate and uh, outdated infrastructure. So people don't have capacity and they are also working uh, uh, with outdated and inadequate infrastructure. So moving forward, these are the things that we need to um, 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 work on. So we note that inclusive human and institutional capacity at all levels will enable improved service provision and also will facilitate efficient operating and maintenance of technologies. Um, if we are to look at uh, institutional capacity development and um, if I may give examples based on what we are doing as an organization and what other organizations are do doing, excuse me. So as an organization, uh, we are working with different institutions to bridge this uh, capacity gap. Uh, but of course, more needs, uh, needs to be done. We have a program that is called International Training Program on Sustainable Wash, which we are implementing with support from CEDA and discovering countries like Kenya, Rwanda, Uganda, and Zambia. And uh, this program speaks key personnel from uh, different ministries, from different utilities and different organizations that have got a mandate to deliver on WASH. 
and uh, trains them and also partners uh, partner them with uh, um, um, institutions that are delivering well on this. And we have seen transformation, not only at individual level, but uh, also at institution level where they are coming from, because the projects that they are working on, they are taking them back to uh, um, enhance the capacity of their institutions. So through the Global Water Operators Initiative, we are also trying to partner um, uh, different water utilities, uh, be it Northern and South and also South-South partnership. For example, we partners water utilities in Zambia with water utilities in Uganda. And these partnerships have actually helped to uh, increase water supply, uh, reduce uh, non-revenue water, and actually enhance uh, utilities performance. Mm. And one other example that I can give around institutional capacity development is the establishment of a, a center of excellence. We've managed together with the uh, government of Uganda, managed to establish the Water Resource Institute in, in Uganda, which is basically training uh, people uh, um, on different um, expertise around wash. The second aspect that I can uh, speak to around building back better is around capitalizing on innovation. We have seen and we are still seeing a lot of uh, innovative practices, technologies being developed, and we need to leverage and scale up uh, this innovation uh, to ultimately lead to improved water resources and sanitation development and management. I think examples that I can give to, uh, given uh, the context I am operating in, uh, in East Africa, uh, a context of high urbanization, we are seeing uh, developments and uptake of decentralized waste, wastewater treatment system, which have actually improved uh, the sanitation uh, uh, systems in uh, highly dense, um, high, high density areas. Uh, the same models have been actually taken up also in Ethiopia through an initiative which is called Small Towns, where uh, with the government we've multiplied uh, decentralized wastewater treatment systems. Uh, we also need to take advantage of technology, particularly the mobile system, the phones, um, and uh, we have initiatives, for example, like with Viamo, where hygiene behavior messages have been deployed through the phones to reach um, quite a number of people. They've also gamified uh, radio dramas on COVID and, um, uh, and um, COVID and hygiene, which has helped actually to uh, increase the reach. So as we move forward, we need to take advantage uh, of these uh, innovations. The third aspect is around uh, institutional arrangements and or governance systems around WASH, which we need to improve. I think one key lesson that COVID-19 has taught us is to work better collectively, collaboratively, and act with agents. I think uh, if we are to look at the mechanisms that are in place around COVID response, uh, the establishment of uh, national steering committees, which bring together different ministries with different mandates, but um, all collectively coming up with measures 
which are being deployed with agency and being followed through. Such mechanisms, I think we need to adopt moving forward. Mm. So cross-sector co uh, collaboration with clear roles, stakeholder involvement and effective and inclusive institutions will definitely make wash everyone's every business and will ensure uh, coordination mechanisms operate effectively. So we need to ensure that institutional arrangements are clear and there are clear roles uh, to help us uh, build back better. I think Batsi has talked around financing. Uh, I won't get much into detail on that, uh, but in brief, um, the estimates from the World Bank, um, recent estimates suggested that achieving SDG targets uh, for low and middle income countries requires around about uh, 198 billion a year, that is per country. And if you look at the investments currently, we are way below that. Mm. So what needs to be done is basically to improve targeting better utilization of existing resources and also enhance mobilization of additional domestic and international funding to ensure that um, WASH is enhanced and it reaches everyone everywhere. The fourth aspect is around data and information. And uh, I think uh, it's very clear that there is an acknowledgement that data and information often is not available. And uh, um, for that data that is available, it's not really shared. So it's very difficult for uh, decision makers, even for um, program designers uh, to design, to make decisions with limited data. So moving forward as part and parcel of building back better, one of the key things that we need to improve on is to improve on data collection and data management. So with regard to that, I think uh, bringing in the experiences uh, from uh, my organization, we are working with governments to improve uh, information management systems on WASH. And uh, we have uh, best examples coming from the government of Rwanda. We have best examples also coming from Uganda and also from Tanzania. And I think it's something that can be scaled up as well. Um, these systems, they capture uh, information um, around um, wash facilities, user numbers, uh, operation and maintenance issues uh, to include other variables around that. <laughs> The other aspect that is also critical uh, is around inclusion. Uh, it's a right that everyone everywhere, irrespective of gender, age, race, political affiliation should have access to quality wash services. Wash is basically a health issue. Uh, it's a livelihood issue. It's also a different issue and different needs, for example, for people with uh, uh, living with disability are not captured and considered in many WASH designs. So as we move forward, uh, we need to capture this, not only for people with disability, uh, but also for, for women and other vulnerable groups. Hmm. But still under inclusion, uh, we are seeing a growing shift and attention and focus from rural to urban. Uh, this is on the basis of growing urbanization. 
However, this doesn't mean that vulnerabilities and watch needs are also shifting. I think those needs are still very high uh, within the rural areas. So it's something that is coming up as a silent deprioritization of wash in rural areas. So as we move forward, I think we need to make sure that there is a balanced act between urban programming and also rural programming around wash service provision. Mm. But one key aspect I think that I can also highlight uh, for as part and parcel of inclusion is uh, around the workforce. If you look at the workforce, um on wash and reflecting on a recent study that the world bank has instituted only 18 percent of um, uh, the workforce uh, in um, water utilities are made up of women so there's need for um for the government's uh private sector different institutions to also look into this and um ensure that uh, women um, um, are employed and they take up roles within the, the wash sector. Uh, to address this as an organizations, um, we have developed a partnership with organizations that represent interests of different groups, like women, youth, um, uh, people living with disability. And this has ensured that uh, interests and also needs of different groups are captured within WASH. Uh, the second from last is around integration. Uh, here I'm talking of integration of WASH in adaptation plans and other development sectors. I think currently WASH is not widely associated with climate change adaptation. Instead, it is being seen as a development issue. And this has implications for the prioritization of WASH in a global narrative, uh, which is dominated by climate change. Mm. So governments need to recognize the significant threat to life, health, economic well-being that comes from overlooking the links between wash and climate change. So as an institution, one of the key things that we have been working on uh, with um, governments and also uh, other stakeholders is to look at the inclusion of wash within uh, NDCs and also NDC um, implementation plans. And we are happy to acknowledge that uh, we've successfully done so. Uh, in the case of government of Rwanda, they have clear, um, clearly included WASH in their revised NDCs, and they have clear uh, objectives, activities, and budgets uh, in their um, uh, NDC um, implementation plan. The same applies for the government of Tanzania. So I think moving forward uh, is something that we think is critical if we are um, to build back better. The last aspect is around influencing. Um, we are seeing new governments coming into place. Some, they continue to prioritize WASH. Some, they deprioritize WASH. And given a context where governments are changing, uh, it's always important that we keep influencing on their agenda to make sure that WASH is always prioritized and uh, is not uh, moved from the key um, top list uh, development and also climate agenda issues. So I think I can say those are my quick submissions around what can be done to build back better uh, with regard to water sanitation and hygiene. Back to you, Joe. 
Thank you so much. Again, such an articulate and informative response, really comprehensive. Um, thank you, Ronnie. Um, Betsy and Paul, did you want to comment on on that second question or any points raised? Yeah, I mean, if, if um, I think the first thing is that the big thing about COVID this last year, about the mindset that COVID has generated, is that when you look back at other um, global public health emergencies, by and large, they were always things that were happening to them and not to us. And, um, and th them can be defined in many different ways. Them can be people who live on another continent. Them can be people who live in a different part of the town that we live in. And, and so in the past, you know, uh, other, I think the, the mindset of um, uh, in, in, in many people perhaps was that, well, this, you know, this isn't something about me. This is something about them. And, and I think the big thing about COVID is that it is about us and not them. And, um, and in terms of health inequality, you know, the issue is that if, if a part of your town is seeing huge rapid increases in COVID, then that has direct and sometimes immediately and sometimes fatal implications for you, for what you can do, and also ultimately what you may or may not survive and, and your loved ones and relatives may or may not survive because of this. And I think, um, and to me, this could be the thing that actually comes at benefit that comes out of this. If you have health systems that actually just pander to the rich in your countries, if you have health systems that basically just focus on the diseases of rich people, then ultimately you can have the spread of disease and epidemics that, that will impact on you. And so one of the big things about COVID is that this is equally harmful. And in fact, potentially even more harmful for the wealthy, you know, the old, you know, if you have the um, fortune to live to a great age, you are more likely to get COVID. And many people in the African subcontinent in particular don't have the fortune to live to great age. If you, through your lifestyle, um, uh, are able to eat far more than you need and get um, um, uh, somewhat obese, whilst other, those around you are, um, don't get, have enough to eat, then you are absolutely more vulnerable. And if you look at the death rates, um, the death rates for, for many um, diseases are always worse in the uh, poorer countries around the world. And, and uh, that is not the case in, um, with COVID. Some of the highest death rates have been in some of the more wealthiest countries, primarily because of obesity and uh, older age. And, and I think that if that generates more of an understanding that you know, no one is safe till everyone is safe, as I think was something that the D Director General of the World Health Organization said um, 
some months ago, then actually that might hopefully act as a trigger to enable more equitable distribution of healthcare resources, not only within uh, uh, the world as a whole, but also within uh, our own countries. And that then leads us on to climate change. You know, it is a, and I think uh, most of the uh, people who research this sort of issue would say that ultimately the people who are going to suffer more from climate change are the least well-off countries and the least well-off sections of societies within those countries. But anything that actually negatively impacts on those countries and those sections of society has the potential to impact even on those of us. So I think if COVID has increased our sense of uh, or has impaired our sense of invulnerability and made us realize that actually health issues can affect us all equally, then maybe there will be some good out of the epidemic. Um, sadly, I'm not hugely optimistic that people, once they get back to their own ways, will remember that lesson, but one can only hope over. Thank you, Paul. Betsy, you had a, a comment in response. I did indeed, and yeah, I fully agree with Paul's last comment there, which is sadly, um, while there's the awareness and recognition that COVID impacts everyone everywhere, um, it's no longer you know, a limited resource um, country issue, it's, a, it's affecting all people. I'm not sure to what extent that thinking will shape how we move forward and how we respond or prepare and respond to future pandemics, but then also um, in terms of how we interact in, in, in the space of development. Um, I think the analogy that sometimes people give is like when you see um, a car accident and you're driving down the motorway, you immediately check that your seatbelt is on and for the next few weeks you always have your seatbelt, but as a memory fades, then you might, you know, not wear your seatbelt, um, but I guess time will tell. I wanted to pick up on the comment that Ronnie made around integration um, and how important it is to be integrating climate resilience into WASH programming, because I think, I think it links to the comment that Mark shared on the chat, and he was asking you know, whether there's some dilution of WASH with a focus on climate. And I think really this comes back to the question of framing, because to be honest, in development, there's always competition. There's always some latest kid on the block in terms of a development issue that somebody is trying to push forward. And that has a tendency to divert attention from what countries are really working on, or it might be more sexy in a way. And so I just wanted to reinforce that the real issue here is how climate change is framed how it is integrated, like Ronnie said, into regular programming. As long as we see it as something that is separate to um, the provision of WASH services, then it, there will be competition. But if you recognize that you know, it is integral to how we're providing these services and their sustainability, then it's easier to be including it in everything that is being done. And there are examples of countries that are already looking into that, particularly um, small island developing states in the Pacific will recognize that not just their infrastructure at stake, but their actual lives 
these are, you know, um, island countries that are at risk of being washed away, essentially. And so there, there's that real recognition that climate change is not an additional thing in the development agenda. It's something that we need to incorporate in everything that we are doing. Um, but related to that and how generally I think countries uh, can move forward in the future, um, how we build back better. One point that I'd like to mention is um, sharing experience really matters. So whether it's experience in improving our preparedness, our um, information management systems, um, our institutional arrangements, and a lot of the work that we do now, countries will say, okay, there is guidance on this. There's guidance on climate resilient water safety planning. There's climate you know, guidance on uh, vulnerability and adaptation assessments. There's, there are so many tools that are out there. But the real question the countries have is, okay, who's actually tried this? What worked and what didn't work? Because it always boils down to your specific context, the resources that you have, and countries are looking towards each other to figure out, okay, in my region, who else has tried this? So I think in the context of, of climate in particular, that experience sharing is important because a lot of the um, risks that countries face are similar, given um, a particular river basin, given a particular geographical location. Uh, we saw in the example of Southern Africa, Mozambique, Zimbabwe, Malawi were all affected by cyclonida. And so bringing those countries together at a regional, uh, at a regional level and encouraging that kind of peer-to-peer -peer exchange can really kind of, yeah, um, move the agenda forward because countries know at least what other people are doing and what's not working for them and what can be improved. Over. Thank you so much. So, um, so Paul, oh, this is your question. At the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, there was a huge emphasis on hand washing and hygiene. And clearly people need access to water and soap in their homes, but also in their workplaces, schools, in healthcare facilities, and other public places to be able to do this sufficiently. Now that we have mass vaccination programs and also appreciate the importance of fresh air and ventilation, should we still be concerned about inequality of wash access and hygiene behavior change? And then the second part, if I can sneak the second part in, are there key places such as countries or facilities that we should target for wash improvements going forward? Right, well, the first thing to say, I mean, talking about hand washing and COVID, <clears throat> the theory behind it is, is, is the issue of about what's called fomite transmission. Fomites are um, usually inanimate objects that you can spread an infection. The classic example of this is toilet door handles in public toilets where, you know, you can, um, uh, in theory, you can go in, open the door and pick infections up on your hand, which you then, um, when you suck your finger or bite your nails later on that day, you, uh, uh, you consume the uh, leftover excrement from somebody else's hand and get sick. And, um, and we, with COVID, um, we felt um, that certainly fomite transmission was plausible and indeed probable and has been shown for other respiratory infections such as influenza. Um, and in the context of that, it made very good sense to push uh, hand washing and hand hygiene as a valuable intervention. 
Having said that, it's actually been very difficult to prove fomite transmission for COVID uh, in the um, uh, during the pandemic, and um, you know, and I'm not aware of any really strong evidence that fomite transmission has played a major role. Um, inhalation transmission is largely where it's at, you know, particularly talking to somebody in a corridor face to face is uh, without face coverings is a high risk um, activity. Um, and we know that and that is the, the main um, way of transmission. So ultimately, probably hand washing per se didn't have a dramatic impact on the spread of COVID. Now, that doesn't mean to say it's had no impact. And um, certainly, although we haven't been able to prove it, there will have been some uh, fomite transmission almost convincingly. So that, you know, if you wash your hands, um, then you will reduce the risk to yourself, but you won't necessarily have a big impact on, on the pandemic but it's not quite as easy as that and not quite as straightforward as that. There are whole, and this, when we move into healthcare facilities, it gets substantially more of an issue across a number of range, uh, the, uh, um, um, activities. The first thing to say is that when you're in hospital with COVID, COVID isn't just the only thing you need to worry about. There are all sorts of other hospital infections, methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, that can be spread by people's hands. And, and although um, uh, in, in many contexts, um, staff work very well when they, and they wash their hands and they sanitize their hands in between patients and all that sort of thing, um, when staff are under pressure, it does get very difficult to maintain a lot of these basic hygiene practices within health systems. I mean, we saw this, you know, in my own career when I used to have a real job before I became a university professor. Um, you know, we worked in a hospital and I uh, we had um, a problem with methicillin resistant staph aureus on a special care baby unit. And it, it was a problem at a time, and it became a problem at a time when uh, the weather was very hot, and actually as well the uh, uh, special care baby unit was over busy, so that the staff they weren't feeling as um, uh, as perky as they normally would have done because of the intense heat during that summer, and also they had a lot of and and standard slipped, and the um, uh, MRSA uh, started causing problems. And so in that context, any pressure on the health service, on a health service, you have that your access to good quality water and sanitation in those hospitals is essential, not only to protect and help deal with the primary infection, but to stop people coming in with one thing and going home and dying from something else. And uh, uh, and we've seen this and interesting, not a hand hygiene issue, but a hygiene issue nonetheless, with the multicolored molds, uh, multicolored fungi that are spreading in India at the moment. Um, and um, 
the, the, the moment that the people talk about three different colors, the black, the white, and the yellow. Black fungus in India is um, a mold. Um, it's mucormycosis, which is not that common, typically, um, but is uh, being a particular problem in India at the moment in people who have got COVID. Uh, the um, white fungus is a candida, it's a yeast, uh, related to the, uh, similar to the uh, species that causes typical thrush. And, um, and we, we have problems when um, patients are on antibiotics and particularly patients who may be undergoing radiotherapy or some other thing, um, often suffer very badly from thrush um, in their mouth and, um, and need uh, antifungals to control it. Uh, this seems to, uh, seems to be happening in India with this, this yeast called Candida auris, which actually is resistant to most of the antifungal treatments that we have except for the very, very expensive ones, which probably aren't going to be used in India. So that, and then, then the uh, yellow fungus is aspergillosis, um, uh, which is, you can get problems in, in, in the UK with aspergillosis. And the thing about aspergillosis and the thing about the moulds generally is that they spread in less hygienic environments, dusty environments. So, uh, so, if you're going to keep your hospital as safe as possible, you need water to make sure things are washed down, to make sure the walls and the floors are washed so that dust doesn't build up, so that people get infected. So, and, and also you need water to make sure that people and staff can wash their hands when they're working for chain patients, so they're not spreading all these other um, diseases. So that actually, ultimately, Although it's been difficult to prove that hand washing per se has been really important in controlling the COVID epidemic as a whole, it has undoubtedly been really important in terms of the supplies to healthcare services that enable hospitals to treat COVID patients safely and in a way that doesn't actually then uh, give them something worse. Um, and um, and I think that is the, um, uh, that, I think that's a realistic uh, issue. Now, it, uh, assessment of the situation. Now, having said that, clearly, um, you know, we still want people to wash their hands and don't, goodness sake, don't anybody go away and say, well, Paul has said it's, it's not important to wash your hands um, if, uh, to protect yourself against COVID. Um, uh, uh, washing your hand actually does a lot of other things than stopping you get COVID, um, and, and it probably and, and in that context, you know, people who don't have access to water and are aware of, for hand washing and aware of the uh, the concerns about and and real concerns about um, uh, person to person spread through contact uh, that hand washing would interrupt. Um, will, I'm sure, feel, and quite rightly feel, more vulnerable about from COVID, but also because all the other things. And I think one of the, um, the um, I heard one person some months ago talking about, well, you know, um, whether or not hand washing protects you against COVID, you know, it, it would be good if this is a, 
this can start a habit that continues after COVID. And, and I think everybody would um, uh, be comfortable with that. But again, going back to the key places, as you've probably gathered from what I've said so far, for me, the key places for WASH and COVID is going to be in the hospitals and the healthcare facilities. And we know that a substantial minority of healthcare facilities around the world don't have access to running water. They don't have access to improved san sanitation and they really struggle to maintain adequate hand hygiene, excuse me. And, um, and I think if we don't address that, we are heading for a further serious problem. And I think one of the things that talking about going back to um, uh, uh, selfishness for reasons for wanting other people to um, live healthier, safer lives. With, with healthcare facilities, one of the things about these superbugs, and you know, when you, and it doesn't matter whether you're talking about vancomycin resistant enterococci, extended spectrum beta lactamase uh, organisms, often they develop in, in countries with uh, the low income countries in, for a variety of reasons, partly due to antibiotic abuse, but they then spread globally. And the way to stop them spreading globally is to improve hygiene practices in hospitals and you're not going to uh, around the world. And you're not going to do that unless you actually have good quality water, sanitation and hygiene in all healthcare facilities around the world. So going back to my uh, theme of self-preservation, it is in my interest as a, um, um, an aging professor in, in, um, in the UK, that ultimately a small hospital in, um, in, in a rural area of Kenya has adequate access to water, water sanitation and hygiene, because possibly, just possibly, that is the hospital where an organism develops the resistance that would ultimately spread its way around the world and be the cause of my untimely death. And therefore, yeah, we, uh, there are many reasons for that everybody should have water and sanitation access. And going back to the climate change thing here, I think one of the things that we've been, that's, um, that's been difficult with WASH and climate change um, has been actually looking at trying to assess what is going to be the most dramatic impact of climate change on WASH availability. And I, I've got no, personally, I have no doubt what that is, um, although I can't necessarily prove it to uh, Roger's satisfaction. But um, uh, I think it's drought. And I think the impacts of drought across the world are going to be felt for many years, not just in Europe. I mean, we last time I was in South Africa in Cape Town, and it's not that long ago. There was signs everywhere telling me not to shower and and you know be careful how much water I used because of the drought. And ultimately, when droughts happen, and and they're more serious than floods because floods, you know, that floods are more dramatic, but floods 
come and go. And, you know, you, you're left with a devastated society, but, you know, it's, they're ultimately short-term events. Droughts can go on for years or decades. And the cumulated impact of that on the ability to people to access sufficient water and grow their own food, and also on hospitals to provide adequate resources for maintaining uh, hygiene and sanitation and you know both of individual staff members of patients and of the the general ward environments will undoubtedly suffer in dustier drier environments without inadequate water and where the dust spreads mucomycosis aspergillosis which will kill people who happen to come in with severe covid i think i'll uh, uh have i said enough now <laughs> Thank you, Paul. That's great. That is a lot of a lot of stuff to think about. Really, really insightful and helpful. Thank you. Um, so I guess I wanted to offer Batsy or Ronnie a chance to comment on anything that Paul has said. Sure. Um, so maybe just to pick up on the comment that Paul made about um, the links between hand hygiene and COVID transmission not being that strong, but that doesn't mean that you know we shouldn't be practicing hand hygiene, doesn't mean that we shouldn't be washing our hands. I think this is true of um, wash in general. Um, Paul can equally speak to um, the wash benefits and the shine studies that were done on you know, visual sanitation um, interventions that failed to I guess, provide a link that was as strong as people would have liked between sanitation and, and health outcomes. But it would be crazy to then conclude that, oh, then sanitation is not important. So I think I just wanted to, to reinforce that there are a lot of um, direct and indirect benefits from WASH that you, know, you still get, which you can't really quantify um in an exact science and say yes this is a figure this is how much benefit you're going to get if you would make sure that every healthcare facility has you know a hand hygiene facility at the point of care but it's still the humane thing to do it's also the dignified thing to do because it goes beyond just the health impacts it's also about just the trauma of going to a health facility either with you know because you're suffering from covid or you're about to deliver a baby and there's no water that is there or the toilet is so blocked you can't use it so i think as we move forward there are some things that should be common sense interventions as opposed to um you know trying to really pin down a specific um statistical figure in terms of the benefit that you're getting from it i think it should be more of um from a from a point of humanity and common sense that we implement some of these interventions. Over. Thank you, Betsy. Uh, Ronnie, did you want to comment on anything? Yes, uh, yeah, thank, thank you very much. Interesting submissions from Paul here, and uh, I'm in agreement with um, his recommendation around in um, improving washing healthcare facilities. Uh, mine is coming also as a question because one of the key things that we are seeing uh, as a development practitioner is a key recommendation to enhance wash services within schools. Mm. Uh, so I want to hear Paul's take around, uh, around that because that is one of the core areas where most of the development funds are being channeled to. So to hear what Paul's take is on that. Mm. 
schools are absolutely crucial. And I think one of the, um, that one of the things about schools is that, um, that, and I'm not an educator, well, other than I teach medicine, I guess, but I mean, apart from that, I'm not, an, I'm not an expert in the theory of education by long means, but you know, it, one of the things that I picked up in, in, is that actually, if you are going to get a good education, you actually need to be in school, you know, um, and, um, and the, the long term life impacts of not being able to be in school uh, are quite major. And you know, if, if you, um, uh, if you um, don't complete school, then you don't get the best jobs, you don't live in some of the in more pleasant environments, you don't have the environments to raise your own children as well as you would have done if you had finished school and got a good job and so on. And, and this, this comes through um, uh, you know, when you look at some of the impacts of water and um, you know, diarrheal disease in children and, and how that leads to stunting and delayed educational attainment and all that sort of things. And, and then um, how that impacts on that child's future life opportunities and how often the, the negative impacts of that can actually then flow, not just for that child's life, but their descendants as well. And I think that is a crucial thing. And, um, and many schools, it is difficult to, for children to go there all the time. You know, there isn't, there may not be adequate sanitation. Um, there may be problems, particularly for um, girls during their periods. There may well be inadequate hand washing, and there may well be inadequate drinking water. And um, we, we, um, uh, and certainly we did some work in Cambodia a few years ago on providing water in in schools, and found that during the dry season, at least, if you were providing water in there, you had better attendance in schools. Then, um, uh, then, then if you didn't um, provide safe water, and um, during the wet season it was a bit different because often these kids were kept off to help with the rice harvesting, uh, the rice um, uh, stuff. Uh, so, yeah, schools are another essential part because if we're going to uh, change society, we've got to have our, we've got to educate our children in general and particularly uh, educate our girls and our young women so that they can help you know, develop uh, the society that um, is more inclusive and um, and is better for public health generally. So yeah, schools, I'm, I totally agree with you, Ronnie. I think we've <clears throat> probably come to a close. We've, we've come to our, just over our 4.30. I'd just like to, send a huge thanks to our guest speakers you've been wonderful um we're so privileged to have people who can give such articulate responses to these questions and it's, it's clearly time to do it go because my dog is telling me so in the background <laughs> he's saying that's a you know soul he's saying enough is enough i can recognize that bark here <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much um it's been wonderful to to listen to you all and um, we'll leave it there today Thanks for it.